Section 3 of The Trial of Susan B. Anthony by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Argument of Mr. Selden for the Defendant The defendant is indicted under the 19th section of the Act of Congress of May 31, 1870, 16th Statute at Large, page 144, for voting without having a lawful right to vote. The words of the statute, so far as they are material in this case, are as follows. If at any election for representative or delegate in the Congress of the United States, any person shall knowingly vote without having a lawful right to vote, every such person shall be deemed guilty of a crime, and on conviction thereof shall be punished by a fine not exceeding five hundred dollars, or by imprisonment for a term not exceeding three years, or by both, in the discretion of the court, and shall pay the costs of the prosecution. The only alleged ground of illegality of the defendant's vote is that she is a woman. If the same act had been done by her brother under the same circumstances, the act would have been not only innocent, but honorable and laudable. But having been done by a woman, it is said to be a crime. The crime, therefore, consists not in the act done, but in the simple fact that the person doing it was a woman and not a man. I believe this is the first instance in which a woman has been arraigned in a criminal court merely on account of her sex. If the advocates of female suffrage had been allowed to choose the point of attack to be made upon their position, they could not have chosen it more favorably for themselves, and I am disposed to thank those who have been instrumental in this proceeding for presenting it in the form of a criminal prosecution. Women have the same interest that men have in the establishment and maintenance of good government. They are to the same extent as men bound to obey the laws. They suffer to the same extent by bad laws, and profit to the same extent by good laws, and upon principles of equal justice, as it would seem, should be allowed equally with men to express their preference in the choice of lawmakers and rulers. But however that may be, no greater absurdity, to use no harsher term, could be presented than that of rewarding men and punishing women for the same act without giving to women any voice in the question which should be rewarded and which punished. I am aware, however, that we are here to be governed by the Constitution and laws as they are, and that if the defendant has been guilty of violating the law, she must submit to the penalty, however unjust or absurd the law may be. But courts are not required to so interpret laws and constitutions as to produce either absurdity or injustice, so long as they are open to a more reasonable interpretation. This must be my excuse for what I design to say in regard to the propriety of female suffrage, because with that propriety established, there is very little difficulty in finding sufficient warrant in the Constitution for its exercise." This case, in its legal aspects, presents three questions, which I purpose to discuss. 1. Was the defendant legally entitled to vote at the election in question? 2. If she was not entitled to vote, but believed that she was, 
and voted in good faith in that belief did such voting constitute a crime under the statute before referred to three did the defendant vote in good faith in that belief if the first question be decided in accordance with my views the other questions become immaterial if the second be decided adversely to my views the first and third become immaterial the two first are questions of law to be decided by the court the other is a question for the jury note the judge here suggested that the argument should be confined to the legal questions and the argument on the other questions suspended until his opinion on those questions should be made known this suggestion was assented to and counsel proceeded End note. my first position is that the defendant had the same right to vote as any other citizen who voted at that election before proceeding to the discussion of the purely legal question i desire as already intimated to pay some attention to the propriety and justice of the rule which i claim to have been established by the constitution miss anthony and those united with her in demanding the right of suffrage claim and with a strong appearance of justice that upon the principles upon which our government is founded and which lie at the basis of all just government every citizen has a right to take part upon equal terms with every other citizen in the formation and administration of government this claim on the part of the female sex presents a question the magnitude of which is not well appreciated by the writers and speakers who treat it with ridicule those engaged in the movement are able sincere and earnest women and they will not be silenced by such ridicule nor even by the villainous caricatures of nast on the contrary they justly place all those things to the account of the wrongs which they think their sex has suffered they believe with an intensity of feeling which men who have not associated with them have not yet learned that their sex has not had and has not now its just and true position in the organization of government and society they may be wrong in their position but they will not be content until their arguments are fairly truthfully and candidly answered in the most celebrated document which has been put forth on this side of the atlantic our ancestors declared that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed blackstone says the lawfulness of punishing such criminals i.e. persons offending merely against the laws of society is founded upon this principle that the law by which they suffer was made by their own consent it is a part of the original contract into which they entered when first they engaged in society it was calculated for and has long contributed to their own security quotations to an unlimited extent containing similar doctrines from eminent writers both english and american on government from the time of john locke to the present day might be made without adopting this doctrine which bases the rightfulness of government upon the consent of the governed i claim that there is implied in it the narrower and unassailable principle that all citizens of a state who are bound by its laws are entitled to an equal voice in the making and execution of such laws the doctrine is well stated by godwin in his treatise on political justice 
he says the first and most important principle that can be imagined relative to the form and structure of government seems to be this that as government is a transaction in the name of and for the benefit of the whole every member of the community ought to have some share in its administration again government is a contrivance instituted for the security of individuals and it seems both reasonable that each man should have a share in providing for his own security and probable that partiality and cabal should by this means be most effectually excluded and again to give each man a voice in the public concerns comes nearest to that admirable idea of which we should never lose sight the uncontrolled exercise of private judgment each man would thus be inspired with a consciousness of his own importance and the slavish feelings that shrink up the soul in the presence of an imagined superior would be unknown the mastery which this doctrine whether right or wrong has acquired over the public mind has produced as its natural fruit the extension of the right of suffrage to all the adult male population in nearly all the states of the union a result which was well epitomized by president lincoln in the expression government by the people for the people this extension of the suffrage is regarded by many as a source of danger to the stability of free government i believe it furnishes the greatest security for free government as it deprives the mass of the people of all motive for revolution and that government so based is most safe not because the whole people are less liable to make mistakes in government than a select few but because they have no interest which can lead them to such mistakes or to prevent their correction when made on the contrary the world has never seen an aristocracy whether composed of few or many powerful enough to control a government who did not honestly believe that their interest was identical with the public interest and who did not act persistently and in accordance with such belief and unfortunately an aristocracy of sex has not proved an exception to the rule the only method yet discovered of overcoming this tendency to the selfish use of power whether consciously or unconsciously by those possessing it is the distribution of the power among all who are its subjects short of this the name free government is a misnomer this principle after long strife not yet entirely ended has been practically at least very generally recognized on this side of the atlantic as far as relates to men but when the attempt is made to extend it to women political philosophers and practical politicians those inside of politics two classes not often found acting in concert join in denouncing it it remains to be determined whether the reasons which have produced the extension of the franchise to all adult men do not equally demand its extension to all adult women if it be necessary for men that each should have a share in the administration of government for his security and to exclude partiality as alleged by godwin it would seem to be equally if not more necessary for women on account of their inferior physical power and if as is persistently alleged by those who sneer at their claims they are also inferior in mental power that fact only gives additional weight to the argument in their behalf as one of the primary objects of government as acknowledged on all hands is the protection of the weak against the power of the strong 
I can discover no ground consistent with the principle on which the franchise has been given to all men, upon which it can be denied to women. The principal argument against such extension, so far as argument upon that side of the question has fallen under my observation, is based upon the position that women are represented in the government by men, and that their rights and interests are better protected through that indirect representation than they would be by giving them a direct voice in government. The teachings of history in regard to the condition of women under the care of these self-constituted protectors, to which I can only briefly allude, show the value of this argument as applied to past ages, and in demonstration of its value as applied to more recent times, even at the risk of being tedious, I will give some examples from my own professional experience. I do this because nothing adds more to the efficacy of truth than the translation of the abstract into the concrete. Withholding names, I will state the facts with fullness and accuracy. An educated and refined woman, who had been many years before deserted by her drunken husband, was living in a small village of western New York, securing by great economy and intense labor in fine needlework the means of living and of supporting her two daughters at an academy, the object of her life being to give them such an education as would enable them to become teachers, and thus secure to them some degree of independence when she could no longer provide for them. The daughters were good scholars and favorites in the school, so long as the mother was able to maintain them there. A young man, the nephew and clerk of a wealthy but miserly merchant, became acquainted with the daughters, and was specially attentive to the older one. The uncle disapproved of the conduct of his nephew, and, failing to control it by honorable means, resorted to the circulation of the vilest slanders against the mother and daughters. He was a man of wealth and influence. They were almost unknown. The mother had but recently come to the village, her object having been to secure to her daughters the educational advantages which the academy afforded. Poverty, as well as perhaps an excusable if not laudable pride, compelled her to live in obscurity, and consequently the assault upon their characters fell upon her and her daughters with crushing force. Her employment mainly ceased. Her daughters were of necessity withdrawn from school, and all were deprived of the means from their own exertions of sustaining life. Had they been, in fact, the harlots which the miserly scoundrel represented them to be, they would not have been so utterly powerless to resist his assault. The mother, in her despair, naturally sought legal redress. But how was it to be obtained? By the law, the wife's rights were merged in those of the husband. She had, in law, no individual existence and consequently no action could be brought by her to redress the grievous wrong. Indeed, according to the law, she had suffered no wrong, but the husband had suffered all, and was entitled to all the redress. Where he was, the lady did not know. She had not heard from him for many years. Her counsel, however, ventured to bring an action in her behalf, joining the husband's name with hers as the law required, when the cause came to trial, the defendant made no attempt to sustain the charges which he had made, well knowing that they were as groundless as they were cruel. But he introduced and proved a release of the cause of action, signed by the husband, reciting a consideration of fifty dollars paid to him. 
the defendant's counsel had some difficulty in proving the execution of the release, and was compelled to introduce as a witness the constable who had been employed to find the vagabond husband and obtain his signature. His testimony disclosed the facts that he found the husband in the forest of one of our northeastern counties, engaged in making shingles, presumably stealing timber from the public lands, and converting it into the means of indulging his habits of drunkenness, and only five dollars of the fifty mentioned in the release had in fact been paid. The court held, was compelled to hold, that the party injured, in the view of the law, had received full compensation for the wrong, and the mother and daughters, with no redress, were left to starve. This was the act of the representative of the wife and daughters to whom we are referred, as a better protector of their rights than they themselves could be. It may properly be added that if the action had proceeded to judgment without interference from the husband, and such amount of damages had been recovered as a jury might have thought it proper to award, the money would have belonged to the husband, and the wife could not lawfully have touched a cent of it. Her attorney might, and doubtless would have paid it to her, but he could only have done so at the peril of being compelled to pay it again to the drunken husband if he had demanded it. In another case, two ladies, mother and daughter, some time prior to 1860, came from an eastern county of New York to Rochester, where a habeas corpus was obtained for a child of the daughter, less than two years of age. It appeared on the return of the writ that the mother of the child had been previously abandoned by her husband, who had gone to a western state to reside, and his wife had returned with the child to her mother's house, and had resided there after the desertion. The husband had recently returned from the west, had succeeded in getting the child into his custody, and was stopping overnight with it in Rochester on the way to his western home. No misconduct on the part of the wife was pretended, and none on the part of the husband, excepting that he had gone to the west, leaving his wife and child behind, no cause appearing, and had returned and somewhat clandestinely obtained possession of the child. The judge, following Blackstone's views of husband's rights, remanded the infant to the custody of the father. He thought the law required it, and perhaps it did. But if mothers had had a voice either in making or administering the law, I think the result would have been different. The distress of the mother on being thus separated from her child can be better imagined than described. The separation proved a final one, as in less than a year neither father nor mother had any child on earth to love or care for whether the loss to the little one of a mother's love and watchfulness had any effect upon this result cannot of course be known the state of the law a short time since in other respects in regards to the rights of married women shows what kind of security had been provided for them by their assumed representatives prior to eighteen forty eight all the personal property of every woman on marriage became the absolute property of the husband the use of all her real estate became his during coverture, and on the birth of a living child it became his during his life. He could squander it in dissipation or bestow it upon harlots, and the wife could not touch or interfere with it. Prior to 1860, the husband could by will take the custody of his infant children away from the surviving mother, 
and give it to whom he pleased, and he could in like manner dispose of the control of the children's property after his death, during their minority, without the mother's consent. In most of these respects the state of the law has undergone great changes within the last twenty-five years. The property, real and personal, which a woman possesses before marriage, and such as may be given to her during coverture, remains her own, and is free from the control of her husband. If a married woman is slandered, she can prosecute in her own name the slanderer, and recover to her own use damages for the injury. The mother now has an equal claim with the father to the custody of their minor children, and in case of controversy on the subject, courts may award the custody to either in their discretion. The husband cannot now by will effectually appoint a guardian for his infant children without the consent of the mother, if living. These are certainly great ameliorations of the law, but how have they been produced? Mainly as the result of the exertions of a few heroic women, one of the foremost of whom is her who stands arraigned as a criminal before this court to-day. For a thousand years the absurdities and cruelties to which I have alluded have been embedded in the common law, and in the statute-books, and men have not touched them, and would not until the end of time, had they not been goaded into it by the persistent efforts of the noble women to whom I have alluded. Much has been done, but much more remains to be done, by women. If they had possessed the elective franchise, the reforms, which have cost them a quarter of a century of labor, would have been accomplished in a year. They are still subject to taxation upon their property, without any voices to the levying or destination of the tax, and are still subject to laws made by men, which subject them to fine and imprisonment for the same acts which men do with honor and reward. And when brought to trial, no woman is allowed a place on the bench, or in the jury-box, or a voice in her behalf at the bar. They are bound to suffer the penalty of such laws, made and administered solely by men, and to be silent under the infliction. Give them the ballot, and although I do not suppose that any great revolution will be produced, or that all political evils will be removed, for I am not a believer in political panaceas, but if I mistake not, valuable reforms will be introduced, which are not now thought of. Schools, almshouses, hospitals, drinking saloons, and those worst dens which are destroying the morals and the constitutions of so many of the young of both sexes, will feel their influence to an extent now little dreamed of. At all events, women will not be taxed without an opportunity to be heard, and will not be subject to fine and imprisonment by laws made exclusively by men for doing what is lawful and honorable for men to do. End of section 3